hey, the Story Collider is teaming up with a new ad service so that we can keep bringing you this podcast free of charge. It would help us tremendously if you could take a quick survey to let them know about you so we can be matched with the right advertisers. It's anonymous, and even if you choose to give them your email for a chance at a free gift card, they won't sell it or use it for anything else. This really does help us get great advertisers, so if you love the show, this is a way to support us and would be very, very much appreciated. Just go to podsurvey.com collider. That's podsurvey.com collider. For our donors on Patreon, a huge thank you for your continued support. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Karen James. It was recorded in July 2015 at One Longfellow Square in Portland, Maine. So before I started working at the MDI Biological Laboratory, I was a postdoctoral research fellow at the Natural History Museum in London. And during that time, I not only did research, I was also um, coordinating a whole series of science projects relating specifically to the legacy of Charles Darwin. And I was doing this because it was leading up to 2009, which was going to be the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birthday. And of course, in London, they had to have a big celebration for Charles Darwin. And so we had a whole bunch of science projects going on related to that, and I got to be involved in all of them. And one of the projects I got involved with during that time is called the HMS Beagle Project. And this is a project that is still ongoing. I'm a co-founder and a member of the board of the UK-based charity for this project. And at the time, we were just getting started, and we started a blog, and we got a fair amount of media attention, especially in the run-up to 2009. And one of the little bits of media that we got was a short news item in Science Magazine. So who's a scientist in the audience? Okay. I got into science. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I haven't been in for other you know, peer-reviewed reasons, but I was pretty excited. So, and I was quoted, and my name was named, woo. Um, so that was exciting, but it, that wasn't the end of it. So about a week later, I was up late checking my email one night in my little flat in London, and I got an email from an address uh, from, with the subject line, com request. That's weird. And then I thought, oh, delete. But then I noticed that the email address was ended with nasa.gov, and I thought, you don't delete that. So I clicked it, and I opened it, and it was from someone named Michael Barrett, and he was uh, emailing me something along the lines as follows. I don't have the email with me here, so I will just paraphrase. You probably get all kinds of crazy emails, so consider this the latest. 
I'm an astronaut. <laughs> so I sat up, <laughs> and I'm going to be on the International Space Station in 2009. And I was, when I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Washington, where I noticed you did too, your graduate degree there, like he had researched me. Um, I was a paleontologist, and I'm a keen sailor. And so when I saw the blurb about the Beagle Project in Science Magazine, I knew I wanted to work with you. So how about collaborating or something like that? And I jumped up from my chair, it must have been 11 p.m., and ran screaming all around the flat, and I couldn't believe it. A collaboration, an offer for collaboration with NASA, ooh, you know. And actually, that led to a series of conference calls with Mike and some other people working at Johnson Space Center in Houston about what such a collaboration would look like. And then they invited me to come to Houston and meet with them. So I attached a side trip to Houston to a conference trip that I was already planning on making back to the US. And I got there, and I met Mike. And Mike is... Um, a lot of the astronauts these days, maybe not in the beginning during the Mercury program, I don't know, are humble, so humble almost to, the, almost to a fault. They're just kind of, yeah, no big deal, I go to space. <laughs> just like you, you know, just kind of, they're just, you know, they're just, they want to make sure that you feel comfortable around them and that you know that they're like an average person, but you don't buy it because they're an astronaut. <laughs> Anyways, he made me feel very welcome, and we had a few meetings about our collaboration, but then, and this was the highlight, I probably should say that the collaboration is the highlight, but this was the highlight. He gave me a tour of Johnson Space Center. We saw the space shuttle simulator, the one that moves, and you push all the buttons, and we got to do a ride in it, well, a simulation, from launch to landing, and actually we died. Um, <laughs> in the simulation and he was all embarrassed. He was he was over in the he was over in the commander's seat and I was here and he was all blushing going, "Well, I'm I'm training to fly on the Soyuz, not the space shuttle, so I'm a little rusty." <laughs> and then we went to the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory, which is the world's largest indoor diving facility and has a full-size replica of the International Space Station 30 feet underwater. It turns out that scuba is the closest approximation to weightlessness you can get on Earth, one of the closest. And so the astronauts train for their spacewalks underwater. And so they train how to repair the space station and things in their, in their spacewalking suit, but it's sort of transformed into a scuba version of the suit. And we got to go into the lunar laboratory, and I reached my hands through those big, heavy rubber gloves, and I got to pick up and hold a moon rock. And I just, all of my kind of childhood love of space just came flying back onto me. And though I'm a biologist, I thought, space is where it's at. <laughs> Maybe I should go back to grad school, <laughs> you know. 
Anyways, uh, I went home and in 2009 kind of came along pretty quick and we did not have HMS Beagle retracing the voyage of the Beagle in 2009. Actually, it's a project we're still working on, we're still fundraising for it. But that didn't stop us from collaborating with NASA. So a group of us from the Beagle project went to Brazil and Mike was on the space station and we had a series of events there to kind of showcase the collaboration. And the highlight of that for me, and I think everyone else, was putting a group of 60 Brazilian school children in a live question and answer session with Mike aboard the space station. And they practiced their questions in English and they were so nervous. And at the end of each question, they dutifully said, over. <laughs> and then he would answer the question and say, over. And then they would ask the next, it was, everyone was crying, including me, and I just felt like, wow, space is the best. So then after that, I went back to London and I kind of went about my life, and, but I was definitely hooked on space. And I got a phone call one day. I got a phone call from a strange number, 000000. 000. I guess I was in a charitable mood because I answered it. And the voice on the other end goes, hey, it's Mike, I'm calling you from the space station. <laughs> and I said, oh, and he, in his usual humble, humble way, he was asking all about me. Like, oh, so what are you up to? How are you doing? How's work? What have you been doing? And I wanted to say, shut up and tell me what you see out the window. And what's it like to be weightless? And how do you go to the bathroom? And all those childlike <laughs> questions, you know. But I hope I didn't say shut up. Maybe I did, I don't know. Uh, I hope I didn't say shut up. Anyways, um, that definitely, so as you can see, I'm just building this excitement about space um, as all of these events kind of occur to me. So around about the same time, I start being involved um, a lot on Twitter. And I find there's a group of like-minded space enthusiasts there called Space Tweeps. That's what we call ourselves. And I found out about these things called NASA Tweet-Ups, which are when NASA invites members of, uh, or users of Twitter, to come to launches or tours or other sorts of events. And I applied and was selected to come to the last launch of Space Shuttle Discovery. But there was a bonus, because Mike was launching on Space Shuttle Discovery on his second flight to space. So I went down to Cape Canaveral and I stood there with my heart up in my throat trying to suppress mental images of the Challenger, which maybe many of you have in your own minds. Um, and, but the launch was successful and it was tremendously emotional. I'm kind of welling up a little just thinking about it. And six months later I came back to witness actually the final flight of space shuttle Atlantis. This was the very last ever space shuttle flight. And this time I was a member of the, um, uh, technically a member of the media, and I was writing an article for The Guardian, um, the UK paper, on the, a first-hand account of a space shuttle launch. So things like, oh, it's a lot brighter than you expect. It's like as bright as the sun. You can't look at it for very long. You have to look away. And when the sound arrives, it hits you in the sternum like that, just like vibrating your whole body. 
and you're just overwhelmed with emotion and so hyper aware of the fact there's eight soft pink human bodies on the top of that barely controlled explosion. Um, so obviously at this point I was just really hooked on space and a friend of mine on Twitter said, well, you know, one day when you go to space, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, ha, 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 yeah, right. And she said, well, maybe. And so just out of curiosity, I looked at NASA.gov and I found out that actually I do fit all the qualifications. So <laughs> I applied that year, November 2011, NASA made its first call in a long time for applicants for the next astronaut class. And you apply on usajobs.gov. Uh, maybe you, you're, there's a lot of laughter, so I guess other people have had that experience. Um, but the trick is there's 6,300 other people applying for the same job, and they're all civilians. There's even more than that applying through various branches of the armed forces. And six months later, I get a letter from NASA with the famous NASA meatball logo in the corner and it says Dr. Karen James and I rip it open and it says you've made the first cut you're one of the top 300 applicants and um, you're considered highly qualified so that's going on my gravestone just so you know <laughs> highly qualified NASA um, so so the next step was to, um, I had to go to Bangor and get an FAA certified aviation medical exam, and I had to submit all my references, and then I got an email saying I had not been selected for the next cut, which was down to less than 100 people, and they all got to go to Houston for a five-day interview, which consisted of four and a half days of medical and psych evals plus a half day of actual interview. Um, so I was pretty gutted, but then I realized after the sting kind of wore, wore off that just applying is a big deal. It makes you think of yourself as the sort of person who could be an astronaut, which is a way of thinking about myself that I had never experienced before. And so when, as rumor has it, NASA puts out another call for applications in the near future, for the next astronaut class, I will definitely be applying. Thanks. That was Karen James. Karen is a biologist at the MDI Biological Laboratory, where she combines DNA-based species identification with public participation in scientific research to meet environmental research, conservation, and management needs. She's a co-founder and director of the HMS Beagle Project, a UK charity that aims to retrace the voyage of the Beagle aboard a tall ship in support of science education and outreach. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bear, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to One Longfellow Square for hosting the show, to our Patreon donors for their continued support, and to astronauts. You know what you did. So does everyone. Seriously, astronauts. Thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. 
Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.